Hey there, I'm Brad Feld, co-host of the Give First podcast, along with David Cohen. In this podcast, we talk about mentors and entrepreneurs in the startup world and discuss the concept of Give First, which means being willing to help other people without an expectation of return. It's not altruism. You do expect to get something back, but you just don't know when, from whom, and what consideration over what time period. Stay tuned for some great stories from some outstanding entrepreneurs about how making Give First makes great entrepreneurship possible. And now, before we really get started, the legal stuff, spoken really quickly. The following discussion is expression of personal opinion does not represent the opinion of Techstars or any company we discuss. Our conversation is for informational purposes only, including any mention of securities or funds. This is not legal, business, investment, or tax advice, and it's not intended for use by any investor. Certain of Techstars funds own or may own in the future securities in some of the companies discussed in this podcast. This is not in tiny little print at the bottom of the advertisement on your TV set because it's a podcast. All right. Today, we have an awesome guest, Rebecca Lovell from Seattle, Washington. Uh, Rebecca today is a director at Create 33, and she plays a very important role in the center of gravity for the Seattle startup community. Uh, she was also previously a director of the City of Seattle's Office of Economic Development. And in this podcast, we're going to get into some things, including, I think, karaoke. Oh, my favorite topic outside of startups. <laughs> Let's start with a little background on you. Just maybe tell us a couple minutes of your own origin story. Just thinking about this has been such a great forcing function to think about the story of my life. I will spare you the details. I'm too old to go into the full story. But, you know, there were just a few defining moments and inflection points that I would love to share. And when I think back on my earliest defining moments, I think of myself as a big sister. I am. I've been one since I was one and a half years old. And my little brother is one of my favorite people in the world. There is nothing I wouldn't do for him. And I am both uh, his cheerleader and I'd like to think a constructive uh, critic of his. And so I took that mentality of big sisterhood into college with me. I went to Carleton College in Minnesota and became a resident assistant, which is kind of like a camp counselor and a therapist for college kids who are far from home. And it was a job that I loved. And I thought that was the career I was going to go into. But here's one of my turning points. I happened to meet with one of those on-campus recruiters. I actually was just attending an information session on my boyfriend's behalf at the time. And if you know me at all, you know that I don't just sit and listen and take notes. I was asking him lots of questions. And afterwards, he said, gosh, I didn't see you on my list of interviews. I'm like, oh, no, 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 this isn't my field. Um, by the way, uh, his field was industrial distribution supplies. Um, not in my life plan or consideration set in the least, but he was hiring for a management development program. And he convinced me that my experience experience in leadership as a resident assistant and some other things I had done translated beautifully into management. So he really got me to rethink the narrative and story I told about myself. And I ended up moving to Chicago and kind of rising through the ranks of this management program over the next six years. So that was an interesting kind of turning point for me, just a little bit of nudge that changed the trajectory of my career. Um, years later, I, I left, I kind of hit this glass ceiling. I had been the youngest and only woman manager at this company. And that at the time had some limitations, but I went to work for a point of sale software development company. They were looking for someone with 
software experience, retail experience, and project management experience. And I had O for three, (laughs) zero for three, but I got them to change their narrative about what they were looking for. I said, listen, I'm really smart. I can manage people. You're one of the 25 fastest growing companies in Cleveland, uh, dubious distinction that that may be (laughs) in the late nineties, but I convinced them to hire me. And that really kind of started me on my path to technology. Um, Then several years and jobs later, I moved back to my native Seattle. This is about 17 years ago now. And I was doing business development in a law firm, primarily focused on their private equity and startup practices. But I found that I spent all of my spare time volunteering in the nonprofit community, serving on boards, you know, uh, uh, being a volunteer in primarily social service nonprofits. And I thought to myself, life is too short to just do this in my spare time. Let me make a job out of this. I'm going to go get my MBA so I can lead a nonprofit and run it like a business. So I'm in grad school here at the University of Washington, shout out to the Foster uh, School of Business. And one of my classmates said, hey, we're doing this venture capital investment competition where we're going to evaluate startup companies. And we've got four people on the team and we need somebody with life science experience, uh, entrepreneurial experience or investment experience. And I reminded him that I was zero for three. along those criteria. But he said, you know, Rebecca, uh, you just win stuff. We want you on our team. <laughs> and so through um, through joining this team, we actually did go ahead and win what was an international competition against amazing programs like Stanford and MIT and Oxford. And I will tell you the reason that we won. We used to say, you know, the other schools may be smarter, but they're not eight hours smarter because we would stay up all night and do the work. But the real magic and the reason that we won is every single angel investor and VC in Seattle mentored us and helped us prepare for how to act like a VC and evaluate real companies. Um, So we took home that championship. And that's when I really, and this has been the last 15 years now of my career, uh, has been running or supporting technology startups. So I think for me, the through line has been, you know, having somebody to tap me on the shoulder, help me change my story about myself and relying on the generosity and mentorship of a community has really defined find my history. And that's what I've taken with me to define, you know, the next chapter of my career. Great, great intro. Uh, My wife, Amy, and I uh, both have a lot of affinity for Seattle. So I've had a long relationship with Seattle for many years. Amy uh, is originally from Alaska and we have a house in Homer. So the Pacific Northwest is uh, just a powerful vibe for me. And um, I remember very viscerally, um, bringing Techstars to Seattle um, around 2010. So as Techstars started in Boulder, we ran it a couple of years in Boulder, lots of people pulling us to different cities. And we just didn't know whether the thing we were doing made any sense or not. So we we just wanted to keep doing it in Boulder until we figured out whether it made sense. In the third year, uh, which would have been 2009, actually was when we expanded, I guess, to Seattle. First class graduated in 2010. So yeah, that timing is right. Uh-huh. Yeah. 2010. That's right. So, you know, first expansion was to Boston where I lived for 12 years. Second expansion was to Seattle. And really the the two people that pulled Techstars to Seattle were um, Andy Sack and Greg Gottesman, who what we were looking for at the time was was pull. And what, what, I, what we discovered was a bunch of mentors, both entrepreneurs and others um, in the Seattle market that were just 
awesome and totally engaged. And you were one of them. And that, that's how I remember that we met. Oh. <laughs> um, I, I, I don't remember if you remember the first time we met, but I, I do remember um, an event around Techstars uh, where I met you and, and you were introduced to me sort of as one of these people that was just making stuff happen in Seattle. So when, when you sort of wind back the clock to 2010, um, what do you remember about entrepreneurship in Seattle and sort of what things felt like coming out of the global financial crisis and, but before entrepreneurship was really trendy again? Yeah. So here, I want to touch on a couple of things, both kind of the origin of Techstars in Seattle. Um, Brad, you may recall or may not, when I first met you, I admitted to um, uh, basically uh, worshiping your blog and I used Feld Thoughts in the class that I was teaching at the University of Washington on entrepreneurship. And so I didn't assign books. I assigned various links from your blog to help people understand VC. So I've been a fan for <laughs> over a decade. Decade. And David, you may remember, or may not, <laughs> that when you came out to Seattle in 2009, we sat on a bench in a hotel lobby and talked about the Seattle ecosystem and how, you know, we are, you know, kind of a big town, we can be a little provincial, and sometimes the organism will reject the transplant. And we sort of talked about how I might get involved and what it takes to be successful in Seattle. Uh, and that gets back to your kind of framing question for this is kind of what was going on in 2010? I mean, absolutely. You know, 2008, the bottom fell out. I will say in Seattle, we, um, the, the highs are higher and or, or not, the highs aren't as high and the lows aren't as low as the sort of winner take all consumer facing businesses in the valley. But to, to say we didn't feel it wouldn't be true. We absolutely felt it. I remember looking at deals in September where we'd see comparable deals in October where literally the valuation was cut in half. I mean, it was brutal, not as brutal here as elsewhere, but it was it was tough. You know, that's when, gosh, it was 2010. Facebook had two employees here. Uh, co-working wasn't really a thing. There were sort of a couple of uh, offices, kind of Regis and My Day Office taking a stab at it. But we still had so many of the ingredients of a successful ecosystem. You literally wrote the book on it, Brad, so I don't have to tell you what those are, but great universities, some anchor tenant, you know, big companies that were a draw for global talent. Um, but for me, what was true then is even truer now is I like to say, the secret sauce of the Seattle startup ecosystem is coffee. And it's not just because we're so highly caffeinated, but that can't hurt. Um, I think it's that we have this undercurrent of collegiality and collaboration where you can get a cup of coffee with anyone that you want or need to meet. And that's where I think you combine that ethos with the lived experience of entrepreneurs and investors who just raised their hands and said yes to supporting tech stars. That's the moment that you stepped into. And now, you know, almost 10 years later, uh, there's 40 co-working spaces, there's 80 engineers engineering centers located in greater Seattle. Facebook has the biggest footprint in Seattle outside of its headquarters. We're not just a one horse town dominated by Microsoft or even two horses, Microsoft and Amazon, a really rich ecosystem. But you got here at a pretty interesting, I think, inflection point in our story about ourselves as a community. So you had a title for a while when you worked for the city of Seattle that I think is a fascinating title, uh, which was Startup Advocate. Yeah. And I have a really simple question, which is what the hell does that mean? 
<laughs> yeah, that was, you know, the city's attempt. And in their, in their defense, they took a little bit of a grassroots approach to defining this position. And they talked to 25 leaders in the tech community. I was uh, running the GeekWire business at the time and part of part of that group, where then Mayor McGinn said, hey, tech folks, what do you think the city should do for you? Um, And we ended up modeling this position after the Office of Film and Music, which really is about advocacy and creating jobs and the creative economy in Seattle. We said, gosh, you know, we, if we're not careful, we're going to lose sort of our burgeoning leadership position in tech. We've got to make a commitment as a city. Um, So I was supposed to be on the hiring committee, but our friend Chris DeVore said, no, no, Rebecca, we designed this position for you, so you better apply. <laughs> so I did. I felt a little Dick Cheney, like I'm on the hiring committee, and then somehow I get the job myself. But um, but so so to answer your question, I was able. This is back in 2014. I was really able to co-architect the role. We'd never done it before, so it was um, you know kind of a blue sky opportunity. And I did the sort of classic startup communities assessment and looked around at the assets that we had and what we were missing. Um, Part of my approach was not to ask entrepreneurs to come see me in City Hall, but I made myself available in co-working spaces around town so I could listen to entrepreneurs and triage their needs and make connections for them. And after my first hundred meetings, it became pretty clear that part of what was missing was the talent pipeline. Really difficult, despite the high concentration of software engineers, can be really difficult for startups to compete for that talent. So we ended up, in addition to my sort of advocacy by triaging and doing office hours with entrepreneurs, um, I ended up really focusing on talent pipeline and and asked myself, what can I do to to make sure that these amazing jobs available in the tech field are available to our own residents, specifically women and people of color who have been wildly underrepresented in this field. And so I ran some interventions around that. So it was part programmatic, um, part just getting out there and taking a bottom up versus a top down approach to ad- advocacy um, and you know on occasion some policy recommendations along the way you mentioned in this last segment uh, sort of this effort and activity around diversity and inclusion um, you're a woman who's been at the forefront of this issue and been very visible I mean you, you mentioned at the very beginning in your intro sort of hitting a glass ceiling obviously there's lots of things going on today uh, around diversity and inclusion especially in the tech industry. Um, many a result of lots of effort over time, some result of uh, a real fun- focus on some bad behavior by men uh, in the last couple of years that has come to the forefront. I think that's really galvanized a lot of action. I- I've been very involved in an organization called National Center for Women Information Technology for a number of years. And one of the things- I- Lucy Sanders, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I, I was I was, I was was board chair for, for a while and uh, worked very closely with Lucy. And I learned a lot about this notion of male advocates or male allies. And I'd love to hear in your words, sort of how men can help around the issue of diversity and inclusion. From your frame of reference as a woman, how can men be allies? Absolutely. And I think uh, I gave a couple of examples of when men can use their power and their privilege to promote women. The first case in my own personal history was that recruiter who happened to be a man who convinced me that I was management 
material. And my classmate, who was a man who convinced me that I just win things like they they both had positions that they leveraged to open a door for me, knowing that uh, that I would succeed. Um, And so that's those are just a couple of small examples. I also think it's in just everyday behavior and creating a discipline around making room for women. I kind of don't like the phrase lifting up women. What you really need to do is quit pushing us down. But the way you can make room for us is I can't tell you how many meetings I've been in, whether it's in the tech sector or in city hall, where I'll be one of uh, just a few women in the room and men uh, uh, categorically sort of have a, a tendency to talk over us. And so if my colleague Jessica would- I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Well played, sir. Well played. So, for example, if my colleague Jessica would make a point and the the man running the meeting would run over her, I would make a point of saying to Jessica's point, repeat what she said, very critical to use her name, and then maybe add my piece to it. This is a technique that men can use. You can amplify women's voices, but I can't tell you how important it is to use your name, use their name when you do it. If you just repeat what she said, you will instantly be given credit for it. So be mindful of sharing credit, you know, shining a light on uh, the incredibly important voices of women. Those are just small daily practices that you can engage in. And then I think writ large, if you look at uh, the the deplorable share and disproportionate uh, disproportionately low share of venture capital investment that women get, um, you know, part of it is about the institutional bias that might be brought into a partner meeting on a Monday afternoon where your bias is going to be towards investing in men. But the real issue that was uncovered by Illuminate Ventures out of the Bay Area, Cindy Padnaus's group, uh, is you literally just have to take more meetings with women. If you think about the venture funnel, if you take 900 meetings over the course of a year and that gets you to nine deals, you want to start at the top of the funnel by taking as many meetings with women entrepreneurs as you can. So that's a daily behavior change is just think about ways to find and say yes to meetings with women entrepreneurs. And over time, both by changing the behavior of the men who dominate the VC industry and making room for more women to become investors and lead uh, VC firms you know, like, uh, like Arlen and Backstage Capital, that's when we start changing the narrative and changing the results. Let's shift to, I don't know, karaoke. <laughs> I've heard from uh, multiple people we talked to about your love of karaoke. I mean, Chris DeVore talked about it. Greg Gottesman talked about it. Uh, um, Micah Baldwin talked about it. Uh, when we were you know, sort of, you know, poking around for some things. You were doing some due diligence on me. I see what's happening Uh, here. That kind of of thing. But (laughs) what what popped out for me was not just karaoke, but this thing called Geekaroki. And I'm I'm quite curious what actually happens at Geekaroki. Um, I will share this with you and your listeners in just a moment, but I want to level set if I choose to take the bait on on this karaoke offer that you put out there. One, uh, my love of karaoke has nothing to do with innate talent. I actually have a philosophy... I actually have a philosophy about karaoke that led me to drag a tech stars class to a karaoke bar to get them over their stage fright and find their voice before demo day. This is a true story. Jaron Schwartz will back me up on that. 
But the point of karaoke is that it is 40% song selection. And in startup language, that's product market fit. You need to know your range. That's your product. And you need to read the room, know your audience and try to pick a song that's going to resonate with them that obviously you can sing. That's step one. That's 40%. 50% of it is just selling it, getting on stage and acting like you own it. And that comes you know, down to the grind and the execution that startups face. And if you do the math, that only leaves 10% for talent. So let me just set the bar very low from a talent perspective and say that I love karaoke, uh, as I said, almost as much as entrepreneurship. Geekaroki is this incredible weekly event that's held Monday nights, for those of your listeners in Seattle, Monday nights at Club Contour at the a friendly hour of 7 p.m., whereby it turns out the not-so-secret, not-so-guilty pastime of sci-fi geeks, tech nerds, comic book fans is karaoke. And so every week has a different theme, whether it's uh, Battlestar Galactica, Star Wars, Star Trek. Cosplay is encouraged but not required. Um, Come as you are. And the song selection need not reflect the theme of the evening, but it's just a great excuse to get out, network with other geeky, techie karaokers. Um, and sing your heart out. Well, as an enormous BSG fan, uh, when <laughs> Roki, uh is uh, BSG themed, I'm there. So I'll, <laughs> well, well, I don't travel much these days. I think that would be a reason for me to come to Seattle. Let's, uh, let's shift at the very end to do a quick rapid fire round, something that uh, David and I have ripped off from Harry Stebbings. Uh, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions and I just want quick 15, 30 second answers. Ready? You got it. Yes. All right. First one, favorite city in the world other than Seattle? Well, would it be to visit, to live, to retire? Does it matter? Oh, you get to define the way you answer the question. All right. Just because I have such a hard time unplugging and truly chilling out and getting off the grid, I would say Salulita in Jalisco, Mexico. I'm a scuba diver and there's no better way to get off the grid than you know sitting around with great food, amazing beach. This little town probably has as many chickens and dogs as it does people. And I'm almost hesitant to say it because it's been this beautifully kept secret, but I love it there. Second one. How about a book that you've read recently that you thought was fascinating? Yeah, I have been this total podcast and audio book junkie of late. And the one that I uh, just finished up is Melinda Gates' Moment of Lift. And it is not for the philanthropy. I think that, you know, commitment is well known. The impact is well known. I love reading books and learning stories when I can get some new insight. And what I love about this book was hearing directly from the author, Melinda, you know, read the audio book is that she had this, what I think is a real startup-y entrepreneurial approach to their theory of change. Like they went into the market of the developing world um, knowing that there was a global crisis around children's health and easily preventable diseases. So their plan was to focus on kids. But when they did their, you know, customer discovery phase and sort of startup parlance, they spoke with so many women, uh, mothers, and learned that the most life-changing thing they could do would be to provide birth control for these mothers. Um, So they went in with a set of assumptions, but they did such a great job listening. They pivoted to what, where they felt like they could make the biggest impact. And so that was a wonderful discovery uh, that I got through that book. I'd strongly recommend that book as well. I read it a couple of weeks ago, and I think it's going to be 
uh, on my list of top um, sort of nonfiction memoiry type books uh, of the year. And I, I don't know Melinda uh, Melinda Gates personally, but you really get to know her from the book, which was another thing that's really hard for an author to do when they're going after a specific topic um, and not have it just be an autobiography. And it, it certainly isn't. And you really get a, but you really get a sense of her as you read it, uh, which is, which is awesome. Agreed. Yeah. Um, charity that you'd urge people to get involved in uh, and why, especially for the listeners in Seattle. Absolutely. I am a huge fan of a program called Apprenti uh, that was launched by the Washington Technology Industry Association. And this directly addresses uh, the talent shortage that we have in the tech sector and uh, seeking equitably shared prosperity. This is an accelerated training program for career changers, you know, seeking uh, living wages and meaningful careers in IT. And they primarily focus on barriered and underrepresented populations like women, like people of color, like justice-involved individuals and veterans. Uh, remarkable story. They've now served hundreds of graduates with life-changing training. Last question, um, Guns N' Roses themed. Uh, if you could have dinner with anyone, dead or alive. Mm, mm, dead or alive. Would be? So I was a history major in college and have long been an admirer of Eleanor Roosevelt, just in terms of her mm. commitment to race and social justice and gender equity. But if I were hosting, I would make it a dinner party and I would have Eleanor Roosevelt, Marie Curie, Janelle Monet and Chrissy Teigen. I think that would be a delightful party. That's a great group. <laughs> Thank you. Rebecca, thanks for the time today. And more importantly, thanks for all the awesome stuff you do for entrepreneurs and for everybody, both in Seattle and everywhere else. It's a sincere pleasure. Thanks to you both. You can always learn more about what's going on here at Techstars by checking out techstars.com on the web or find us at Techstars on Twitter or your favorite social. And don't forget to give first.